0: So again, welcome. I always find it interesting to uh, speak with um, those of you who come on retreat to inquire, uh, why are you here? And, and I think it's a good question to to ask yourself. Why am I here? What what brought me here? What what is going on in my life that made a silent retreat for seven days or six days sound like a good idea Uh, and it might be your first retreat or or maybe you've been doing retreats for many years but each retreat is different and we usually have a different um, uh, motivation or different conditions in our life that is uh, encouraging us or impelling us or commanding us to Uh, take a deeper look because in a retreat setting like this we do get uh, a chance to mm, Let go of the to-do list and uh, Take a take a a, a deeper look at what's going on beneath the surface of things in our life and in the Lifestyle that most of us live it's a luxury To have this opportunity to be able to have the time and the venue and the support and the guidance and the encouragement to take a look to slow down to let go to unplug to uh, look within uh, our own minds to see what's what's going on there both what is uh, challenging uh, us in our life but also what is uh, calling us forward in our life and sometimes we can't hear that voice we can't hear that calling when we're consumed with the busyness of just getting through the day. So a retreat opportunity like this is is really quite special and uh, we we should approach it with an understanding of its specialness. Of course, if we had lived in or if we were living in a, a Buddhist country, Sri Lanka or Burma or Thailand to go on a retreat, you wouldn't we wouldn't need much um, guidance or a preparation for it. Our whole life would have been uh, kind of cognitively preparing us for doing this kind of work and we would have had a, a very full uh, teaching of uh, the Buddha's teachings and and uh, a lot of the the support the the mental structure would be there for us to go and, go in retreat and retreat and know why we were there and what we were doing and what the the goals and the benefits were and uh, we wouldn't need it but for many of us here in the West we we do a little meditation or a lot of meditation, and then we come on retreat. And sometimes we're a little at, uh, a little afloat as well. What's, what what's so different about this than practicing at home, just that we're doing a little more frequently? And uh, so I want to speak a little bit about how to prepare ourselves to do a retreat and to get the benefit of the retreat. And I'm taking my um, instruction from uh, an introduction to uh, a book that I and others have been translating and editing for publication here in the West of a Burmese uh, book written by uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, who was a, a very renowned scholar and practitioner monk in Burma in the middle of the last century. And the name of the book is The Manual of Insight. It's, it's how to practice Vipassana. And he has a section uh, called uh, Preparations for Practice. Let me just step back and, and uh, acknowledge that most of the instructions and the uh, guidance and the teachings that I'll be offering are uh, Buddhist teachings and most of the Uh, traditional uh, practices that I'll that I'll be offering are what I've learned from uh, different monastic and lay teachers mostly from the Burmese uh, tradition Um, Mahasi Sayadaw was a unique um, monk uh, in that he was both a scholar and a practitioner and he, when he wanted to do his meditation practice, he couldn't find or he didn't find a teacher that was very um, instructive for him, uh, which which to us might seem strange that a monk in Burma can't find a meditation teacher, it's like, huh, what? The? And the best he got was, well, just read what the Buddha says and do that. But through his own trial and error and his own practice, he, he did uh, come up with a, a way of practicing and a, a technique of, of practice that he found was suitable for lay people as well as monastics. And so he was invited to start and to open a meditation center in Rangoon that was for lay people, householders like ourselves not people who are gonna live in the monastery or nunnery for the rest of their lives and can take 20 or 30 years to get the full range of teachings and just live a lifestyle of Dharma practice. He taught people like ourselves who have busy lives of family and work and civic obligations who can take a period of time each year. And for us, it might be a week or two or maybe a month. In Burma, it's usually a month or sometimes two. Uh, for a retreat each year, and so in order to capitalize on the limited time that householders have for the intensive practice, he taught in a specific way. What we teachers of Vipassana in the West have done is adapted his method and methodology and kind of formatting of a retreat for householders in the West. Now, what's so unique about that is that prior to mid-century, last uh, century, when he opened this retreat center in, in Burma, if you wanted to receive the teachings that I'll be offering this week or that you might have heard on other retreats, if you wanted to receive them before 1947, when the retreat center opened in Burma, you would have had to ordain as a monk or nun for life. That's it. It generally was not available. Uh, There was another lay teacher in Burma. But for the most part, the actual and practical, pragmatic instruction for mindfulness, the development of mindfulness, and the unfolding of insightful wisdom up to and including the stages of enlightenment was not available to lay people and it was through his willingness and his understanding that lay people could practice intensively for short periods of times and accomplish extraordinary development of mind both in concentration and the development of insight that makes it possible for us now to have this opportunity uh, the link between Mahasi Sayadaw and his center in Rangoon and us here today is that Manindra, who was a, an Indian man, a Bengali man, went to the meditation center in Burma in its early years, practiced, studied, then went to Bodhgaya, India to teach, which is where Joseph and Sharon practiced with him for many years. And they're the Burmese link to the Vipassana tradition here in the West. So it's from Mahasi Sayadaw to Menindra, to Joseph, that, Joseph and Sharon that we get this teaching. Jack and others have practiced in the Thai forest tradition and brought those instructions to the West also. But it's a pretty unique uh, time for us uh, we might think that at any other time we could have had this kind of opportunity, but it's not so. It's, it's very uh, recent, really, that we would have this opportunity. So rather than me just giving you my ideas of um, what I think would be fun to do, uh, I'm, I want to offer Mahasi Saito's guidance. Because he knew that he was teaching lay people not necessarily monks and nuns who had already committed their lives to practice, but to lay people. And um, I want to read his uh, little, a little short piece called Preparation for Practice and then comment on different pieces of it. He says, if one aspires to attain path and fruition knowledge and nibbana in this very life, path and fruition is enlightenment, If you want to attain enlightenment, some stage of enlightenment, or nibbana, the ending of suffering, in this life, one should cut any impediments during the time of his or her meditation practice by undertaking the following. So he's saying, during this period of time, during this six days, cut cut, cut these impediments by doing these practices, and this will help you to put your mind on a track to attain some stage of enlightenment or Nibbāna in this lifetime. So he's very clear, this is not, the stages of enlightenment in Nibbāna is not only for monks and nuns, it's not only for people who lived during the time of the Buddha, it's not only for people who live in caves in isolation and solitude for 20 years at a time, it's for we householders here in the West, and it's possible. Now, let's not get too kind of ungrounded. What does it mean, enlightenment and Nibbana? Well, it means, do you want to stop suffering? (laughs) Do you want to really let go of the causes of suffering in your life? That's attaining path and fruition knowledge. And to let go of whatever it is that's causing distress or disharmony or Suffering, whether it's very gross suffering or the very subtlest kinds of suffering, the dissatisfaction in our life, and it's possible. So, the following practices. Purify your moral conduct by undertaking the precepts. And cultivate the wish. May my moral conduct be supportive of enlightenment. However, if you suspect that you may have committed some offense towards an enlightened person, you should apologize for that mistake. And if you can't see that person to apologize to them, you should offer an apology in front of a teacher. Purify your moral conduct. Well. Many of us have lived less than noble life, and uh, you know there's some things and we've done and said, and uh, some behaviors that we may not be so proud of, maybe a little uh, kind of regretful for, remorseful for, a little maybe ashamed of. But what he's saying here is that the past is past. That's over. You can clean up your act starting now. And if we undertake this period of practice by taking the precepts, as we will, and I'll explain them, by taking the precepts to purify our speech and behavior, that the intention now to purify your mind through your speech and behavior, purify your speech and behavior through your mind for this period of time is adequate. That is sufficient in and of itself. Moral conduct. To support awakening the past is past yes we may have a lot of remorse we've done things we've said things not so skillful not so helpful it may come back and haunt us it may come back and bother us but we can we can understand that we did what we did and it was unskillful and we can have regret remorse for that and let it go We don't have to get entangled in some guilt-tripping of ourself when we were less informed, less knowledgeable, less concerned, less sensitive, less careful, because for this period of time, we're making a greater commitment to keep a clean act. And that, he says, is sufficient. We can't erase the past. But we can have a changed relationship to it we don't have to be stuck in the past whatever it is we've done or said is not an impediment to moving forward which is a great relief frankly <laughs> i don't know about you but you know <clears throat> i grew up in the 60s you know it's like hey what a, to the extent that i grew up <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know the precepts, <laughs> let me remind you. Uh, the precepts are, um, I guess we'd call them uh, kind of like the, the basic community agreements, how we can live in harmony with one another for this period of time. And they're basically agreements and trainings that we voluntarily undertake not to harm each other. Not to harm ourselves, each other, or other beings that we share the space with. And the first is to re- to undertake a training to refrain from harming by by killing. Well, I don't think any of us are going to get that angry that we're going to be acting out that way here. But it's also to share, you know, the space with whatever snakes, whatever bugs, whatever mosquitoes, whatever else, whatever other beings uh, that we're going to share this the space with let them be be sensitive to their expression of their life and to the extent that you can be sensitive to the express their expression of their life it will help you to be more sensitive to the expression of life within yourself and to just accept oh this this is the way it is rather than just it's something bothersome to get rid of this is just the way it is it helps to Um, develop an attitude of acceptance, just acknowledging that this is the way it is, which is kind of a foundation of equanimity. Equanimity equanimity is, well let me just say, it is the key, it is the key to effective practice, it is the result of effective practice, it is the foundation upon which all of our uh, peace of mind will be established is through having a balanced mind. And we can start our practice with a balanced mind, just being willing to acknowledge this is the way things are. The second precept is to refrain from taking what is not offered, generally meaning uh, not stealing. Well, probably none of us are thieves in, in a gross, uh, illegal sense. But it means being sensitive to Uh, what you've been offered here. What we are being offered here in the use of this facility, in the use of time, space, uh, the resources here, and just generally being very respectful of the tremendous cost in both financial and human energy of uh, putting on a retreat like this. The facility and the staff and the volunteers and the cooks and and all of the electricity and the, the paper products and the water and it's just, there's a tremendous number of amount of support for our being here in such a comfortable, uh, luxurious, we'd have to say, uh, place. And just to be respectful and appreciative uh, of that and to acknowledge our gratitude for it by being um, sensitive. Letting what has been offered be enough, let it be enough, to, to, to even actively practice renunciation and just say, if it isn't here yet, I don't need it. If it isn't being offered, I can get by without it. And we can, you know, the thing is, if we can, we can, we can. And, and just to, to undertake that as a training, that whatever's here, good enough. Sometimes we might think, oh, I'd like to have, well, I know we're not here, not here, we're not ever going to say, I wish I had more dessert. But because <laughs> I, I hear we get a lot. Uh, but whatever else it is that comes across your mind is something you need, check it out. Maybe you don't. And just to practice with a, a, a level, a kind of balance of mind that can accept that this is good enough, and just let go of the rest, lest the rest of the, you know, the chattering mind that is insatiably unsatisfied—it just wants more. Anything. The third precept is um, a training in the context of this retreat to refrain from acting out our sexual energy. It's not a judgment of sexual energy, but it's just an acknowledgement that in the context of a silent retreat, when we're each going deeper than our own mind, to not be bothered by others, well, hitting on us in some way, or acting in a way to call attention to uh, or arousing sexual energy, but just to watch within ourselves when, if and when sexual energy arises in our own mind and body, to work, to work with it, to to be aware of it, to to see what it does to the mind, to see what it does to the body, to see how it uh, plays out, so to speak, and to to learn from that rather than to act on it, to kind of satisfy it or to get rid of it or to dissipate it, whatever. And so it's just a way of being within ourselves in order to learn more about ourselves, rather than acting it out in a way that might impact others in a uh, an unfamiliar and uh, an unwelcome way. The fourth precept is a training to. refrain from speaking falsely now for the most part we aren't speaking much here and that's part of uh, the practice is honoring the noble silence which means really remaining uncommunicative other than for practice if you need to speak to myself or the manager about practice fine that's that's fine but to just refrain from uh, the social chit chat and the, the gossip and the, you know, the the kind of the generic greeting and meeting kind of communications, which can be so casual and so habitual, but can be in some ways quite agitating and disturbing in the midst of a retreat. Um, and so, to refrain from speaking unnecessarily. It's an act of renunciation. We we communicate a lot, we're, we're 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 sending out messages all the time, and I don't just mean Twitter and glitter and whatever it is, but you know through our behavior. And so, to the extent that we can contain ourselves from that expression, and uh, we can, we can we can see the urge within ourselves to. Connect and to speak or to seek comfort or to offer solace or comfort or connection, and just to watch this this activity of your own mind is uh, extremely valuable. Of course, if you see someone who is in trouble, is in is having some difficulty, they're having a medical emergency, take care of it. Do what you can by all means. But if you see someone who's just having a hard time with their own mind and they may be crying or they may be frustrated or they may be whatever, let them be. You know, your silent recognition of their condition and a willingness to tolerate it is a great support for them, as, as you'll see for yourself. Uh, just so we can all go through our own process and learn from that. And also, the, the the right speech or the noble silence um, also includes uh, not making gestures to communicate with one another, other than, you know, sure you can go in the line, thank you for holding the door, things like that, that's fine, but not to communicate uh, otherwise by gesture. And uh, certainly not by touch, consoling someone by uh, offering a soothing touch or something like that. Would be, would be best to be to, to let that go with one exception, if someone in the hall near you is enjoying their deep tranquility audibly I hope we can all offer them permission to lightly tap us on the shoulder or the elbow as a way to remind us that we uh, we're, we're, we're we're letting everyone know that they're enjoying their deep tranquility. <laughs> okay, so if you're, if someone starts to snore or breathe in a, in a way that's just prior to sleeping, uh, if we can give each other permission to just let us know by a tap on the shoulder or elbow, then uh, that would be uh, helpful, I think. The fifth precept in the context of this retreat is to refrain from uh, using uh, intoxicants, drugs, uh, alcohol, or uh, whatever else might be available to, that, that, that have a tendency to cloud or distort the mind. Uh, many of us probably have a history of uh, such uh, indulgence, which is done and gone. Uh, for this period of time, if we can uh, refrain from that then we'll get a chance to hopefully clear the mind and see what's going on a little more clearly with one again one footnote if you have been prescribed medication for any medical uh, condition psychological or physical medical condition please continue to take the full dose of your medication this is not the time and place to start weaning yourself off of uh, medication or to try to go cold turkey or to anything like that. This is not the time and place. This practice itself is stressful enough and to add another uh, component to it um, is is, uh, not useful. Uh, Likewise we would ask any of you to refrain from fasting or trying to give up smoking or anything like that during this retreat, but just to you know uh, refrain from the recreational uh, intoxicants. So those five precepts, those five training rules are kind of the groundwork for all of us to be able to live in harmony with one another because if we're all taking the precepts, we'll all be uh, we'll all know we'll have some trust and reliance on others to be, you know, Respectful of our time and space and our process, and we won't. We we can create a, a, a container of safety for all of us to uh, do the work uh, within our own heart and mind that needs to be done. And uh, at the end of the evening, we will. I'll be handing out a, a sheet of the refuges and precepts, and we'll uh, formally take the refuges and, and the precepts as a way of beginning. Beginning the retreat. So that's the first, one of the first um, of Mahasi Sayadaw's suggestions is to purify our moral conduct by undertaking the precepts. And to cultivate the wish may my moral conduct support my awakening, my uh, uh, enlightenment, or my path knowledge. And we do that because we do have an aspiration. We are redirecting our energy and our intentions and our efforts towards a certain goal or we might say we're reorienting them in a certain direction and that is towards more purity of mind and more purity of understanding and more purity of speech and purity of behavior. And when I say purity, I mean free from attachment, aversion, delusion. It's not for no reason that we undertake the precepts. It's for the reason of purifying our hearts and minds and really getting the benefit from that. So if we can take these precepts with that aspiration, oh may this support my awakening, then it's a, an added bonus really He then goes on to say, if you uh, suspect that you have committed some offense towards an enlightened person, you should apologize for the mistake. Does anyone know an enlightened person? (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, I don't think they have halos, and so we don't really know. But what this guidance is pointing to is, if you have done anything in your life to anyone that you feel ashamed about or regretful about even within yourself just acknowledge that to yourself be willing to to have the courage just to say that was a stupid thing to do that was a regretful thing to do. that was a silly thing to do Uh, that was a careless thing to do and forgive yourself we do things out of Conditions, carelessness ignorance lack of awareness that cause harm to ourselves and maybe to the other person and we're the ones who suffer most with it when we're aware of it so give yourself a break you know forgive yourself for that um, sometimes and certainly in the monastic tradition it is important to confess it and Uh, to to share it with another monk, in my case as a monk, to share it with another monk just that, you know, I acted out, I did something silly or crazy, broke one of the rules, whatever it is, and I'm regretful for it. And uh, the other monk says, well, it's good that you recognize that you did something wrong. Uh, It's good that you take full responsibility for it. And uh, please try harder. You know, going forth, please uh, keep it in mind not to repeat that. And that's really what a confession is, is to 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 help us let go of it, just to kind of leave it here, you know? And uh, I'm not requesting that any of you make any kind of confessions to me, but uh, in the past, some people have, you know, who've been really kind of bothered by something have just come and uh, shared it, and uh, I can hear it and can just acknowledge that it's good that you recognize that within yourself. It's good that you, uh, Take responsibility for it, and uh, in the future, moving forward, let it go. Please try to 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 live without repeating that. So there, I've already accepted all your confessions. <laughs> these are not these are not particularly esoteric or Buddhist, or you know, th- these are all kind of commonsensical things. But they are they are preparations. They help prepare the mind for the work that we're going to be doing during the retreat. Then he goes on to say, entrust yourself to the Buddha's wisdom in order to be free from fear in the event that frightening experiences arise during your practice. Also, you should entrust yourself to the teacher's care so that that teacher may guide you without any hesitation. As I mentioned, the instructions that I'll be offering are from what I've heard from my teachers uh, of the Buddhist teachings and what I've read of the Buddhist teachings and what I've practiced and and to the extent that I've realized, it's what I've understood of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, I have found the Buddhist teachings to be very uh, uh, comprehensive, very pragmatic, um, and, and they don't require a faith that's blind. Because th- 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 there's, there's quite a lot of uh, uh, wisdom, quite a quite a lot of apparent wisdom and, and logic and support to them, and so to the extent that we can trust, or that you can trust that what I'm sharing with you is is the Buddhist teachings, I think that would be helpful. And to the extent that you can uh, uh, understand that or trust that uh, I have no uh, ulterior motives, uh, I'm not looking for students. I'm not I'm not a guru. I, I think I'm more of a uh, someone who's walking the path with you, uh, maybe beside you, and have have seen some of what you see, and maybe have a suggestion for how to navigate that that terrain of the mind. And so, if you can uh, trust, then then that's good. Uh, if you can't, then recognize that uh, that uh, yes, you may have some uh, uh, difficulties believing everything that the Buddha said, or even everything I say. That's okay, you know. But recognize that. Recognize, oh, you know, I'm not sure I can believe that, or, or not, uh, not just to uh, fret and stew about it, but to acknowledge to yourself, put that aside, <coughs> hear what you hear, uh, and what you what you find useful, take it in and, and practice that way. If what I say is uh, unuseful or doesn't doesn't resonate with you, let's let it go, forget it, <laughs> don't don't bother about it. If it doesn't make sense or doesn't ring true to you. Don't disturb your own mind with that. Just let it go. <coughs> then uh, Mahasi Sayadara ref- says, uh, Reflect on the merits of Nibbana, which is completely free from any mental or physical suffering. Uh, you know, I don't think we know what that means. I mean, Nibbana is this kind of magic word out there somewhere. It's like, wow. But he says, he says Completely free of mental and physical suffering. What's that mean? Uh, It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Well, that's, I mean, we don't know. But we know that the Buddha said that there is this reality, Nibbana. It can be known. It is the absence of any suffering. Okay, well, we'll see. we we'll see. We can just reflect on that. Well, maybe, whatever that means. Now, of course, we know some levels of suffering. You know, anger, frustration, fear, uh, panic, depression. This is suffering. You know, loneliness, jealousy, fear itself, uh, insatiable desire, unsatisfiable desire. They're pretty obvious suffering. But what about, you know, the suffering of impatience, the suffering of, you know, discontentment, the suffering of, uh, you know, there's just subtler, subtler and subtler layers or, or degrees of discontentment in the mind that the Buddha said is also not present when one understands or when one realizes Nibbana. Hmm. Okay. Now reflect in your own life. What is it that bugs you? <laughs> What is it that stresses you out, what is it that uh, distresses you, what, else, what is it that causes any level of discontentment in your life, any level of insecurity, any level, any kind of vulnerability in your life, now imagine that is gone, no longer a source of that discontentment or that vulnerability or that insecurity or that fear or anxiety. Not there. Hard to imagine, but that's the direction that the Buddha's pointing to. And it's real. It's real. This is not magical. This is not impossible for any one of you in this room to taste. In this very life. Maybe not in six days, but <laughs> 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 nevertheless, if we if we reflect on that as a possibility, it can inspire us in our practice. And that's what we're doing. It's a preparation for our practice for this next for this next period of time. Reflect also on path knowledge, which is the moment of enlightenment, which eradicates the defilements and leads directly to nibbana. Enlightenment, the moment of enlightenment, or the moments of the stages of enlightenment, are very distinct, very noticeable, very discrete moments of time. They're not kind of like some vague, generalized, woofy, woozy, woozy. It, it is time and place, knowable. And the distinctive piece about path moments or the moment of enlightenment is that it, it not only just temporarily suppresses or, or reduces the defilements, it uproots them. It means that at the first stage of enlightenment, you know, they say the, the, the what is uprooted is the doubt about how to practice and realize uh, Nibbana, no more doubt. No more doubt about practice. No more doubt about yourself in practice. No more doubt. Never arises in the mind again. Also, there's other things. Eventually, uh, the the defilement of aversion. You know all the forms of aversion: fear and anxiety and and uh, uh, anger and irritation, uprooted from the mind. Meaning, the mind never goes there again. No matter what's happening, the mind. Doesn't resort to aversion. Is that possible? Haven't tasted that one yet, but <laughs> you know, I see the path. I see the path. I see how it happens, and uh, it sure would be nice. So, just reflecting on that as a possible a possibility uh, can support our efforts here, even though we're not there yet we may see plenty of aversion nevertheless our practice moves in the direction of eradicating that defilement from the mind and then to reflect on Vipassana practice which will surely lead to the attainment of enlightenment and Nibbana it is through Vipassana practice that we realize this moment of enlightenment and that we realize Nibbana and what I'll be offering you here is mindfulness training and the development of vipassana knowledge. Because it is vipassana knowledge that uproots the defilements from the mind. So when we reflect on that, we can we can see the uh, value and understand the value of what it is we're doing. Why we're developing mindfulness? Why we're developing this awareness? Why we're developing Insight or vipassana, uh, instead of some other. You know, there are many. There are many different kinds of meditation. As you know, there's all the brahma viharas, loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. There's all kinds of mantras. There's all kinds of visualizations. There are just innumerable skillful means from many different mm-hmm. Buddhist and other spiritual traditions for developing these qualities of mind. But it is understanding. It is insightful knowledge which uproots the defilements from the mind. So that's what we'll be practicing. We'll be developing all these other factors of mind, but in the service of developing Vipassana. Finally, no, not even finally, (laughs) number nine. (laughs) Uh, Number ten is one should find inspiration by remembering that the path of Vipassana that we're practicing, the path of practice that we'll be practicing this week, is the same path that the Buddha and all other enlightened beings have followed. We're not inventing this path for ourselves. We're not just kind of hoping that it's going to happen. This is what every other being who has awoken to the end of suffering This is the practice they have done. This is what they've done. So whatever it is that you meet in your own mind in this week has been seen and worked through and worked with and let go of by every other being who has uh, realized the enlightened or the awakened mind. You're not the only one. It, it, it is so much support to know that you know. Sometimes you get in there, and Jesus, it's it's you know. For those of you who've done retreat, it can be slogging, and it can be tough going. You know, there's some difficult. Why bother? You know, there's some why bother moments in practice. Well, why bother is because well, this is the path. This this is what you got to got to get through. You got to learn about in, in order to 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 reach that uh, or even to get close closer to that that. Desirable uh, state of mind that's free of free of discontent, free of suffering. So, uh, let's see. Find inspiration in remembering that the path that we're doing, the path of practice that we're taking, is the path that the Buddha and all other enlightened beings have have followed. This is the path of nobility, and I talk about uh, how practice throughout the retreat. I'll be talking about how practice ennobles the mind. Don't have to get do not have to get too inflated about it, but it's ennobling. As you can see, it, it really elevates the mind into kind of a clearer, uh, a purer space, f- less, less self-absorbed and a little more uh, wise, compassionate uh, space of the mind. Then, <coughs> he says, one should bow to the Buddha. There's a Buddha, Rupa here. Kuan Yin. Oh, it's Kuan Yin Buddha, Kuan Yin Buddha. Okay, uh, So there's a, there's a Buddha Rupa here, and when I come into the hall, I usually uh, will bow three times to the Buddha. And when I bow to the Buddha, in this case the Kuan Yin, I'm just reaffirming my taking of refuge in the Buddha's teaching, the, Buddha, uh, the Buddha's teaching, the Dharma, and the Sangha, those who have practiced. For me, it's a practice uh, of, of reminding myself what I'm doing here when I sit down. Uh, it's not required, it's not expected, and don't by any means do it as just kind of a meaningless ritual. Meaningless rituals are meaningless. <laughs> Give it up. That's one of the things that gets let go of in the first stage of enlightenment, is meaningless rituals. So <laughs> let, let go of that. Uh, but if you find it useful as a way to remind yourself what you're doing or to inspire yourself to really make your best effort. Great. You can do that. Bow to the Buddha. Then he says, when you bow to the Buddha, reflect on the many attributes of the Buddha as the all-knowing one. It is said that, kind of hard to imagine, it is said that the Buddha could know anything he put his mind to. Well, hard to imagine. But uh, it's just the power of the concentration and, and the degree of the wisdom. Uh, and then and then to actually free the mind from uh, all levels of discontentment. Pretty, pretty ma- ma- magnificent. Uh, I don't think we can hardly imagine all, all the, the qualities of a Buddha. But even if you could just have one, one quality of the Buddha, it might be some magical uh, capacity he had or some uh, vision he had, or some uh, uh, maybe just uh, really can grok how he understood the mind. Uh, can be pretty, pretty far out. If that's what it takes to 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 inspire you to to uh, move in the direction of Buddha mind, then let that be good enough. Just incidentally, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, hype. About the Buddha, there's a lot of mystery about the Buddha, but you know the Buddha was a human being, just like us. And while he really did devote a lot of energy and a lot of lifetimes, they say, to perfecting his mind, uh, he was born in a human body. you know he had to deal with kind of you know the human condition as we all do. And uh, fascinating reading about his humanity. How, as a human he was dealing with you know friends and enemies and you know challenges and you know hunger and it just <sighs> but with a with an ennobled mind a mind that was awake and aware and willing to acknowledge just the way it is and deal with it and it can be very inspiring just to to recognize that the buddha was, was a human being He wasn't some god or he wasn't a, a kind of some celestial being or some ethereal <laughs> ghost-like thing He was you know, blood, sweat, bones, tears, all that, uh, without suffering. After this, Mahasi Sayadaw goes on to say, it is recommended that one cultivate loving kindness towards all living beings, beginning with the guardian devas of the monastery. Now, loving kindness, you know, many of you have practiced loving kindness, metta, uh, just an appreciation of uh, oneself and others. May you be happy, may you be uh, peaceful, may you be free of... Uh, physical, mental suffering, may you be at ease with the conditions of your life. And even just that much towards yourself and others can be a way of softening the heart and just uh, uh, practicing a little metta. But he says, beginning with this, the the devas of the monastery. So this surrounding, this, this this Angela Center is our monastery for this period of time. And uh, whether we whether we believe it or not, or whether we see them or not, or whether we can acknowledge them or not. It is said that there are other beings sharing this space with us. So let's not exclude them. Well, let's welcome them to, to be in the hall here with us, or to walk with us outside, or to fly, whatever it is they do. And uh, may they also be happy, because if they are not happy, eh, <laughs> maybe it will have an effect on us. So let's wish them to be happy, so that we too can be happy. So beginning with the guardian Davis of the monastery. And if possible, if possible, like why isn't it, uh, one should then contemplate death. Well, this is actually a a protective meditation. Metta is a protective meditation. It protects us from feeling isolated and just getting um, uh, really Mm -hmm. self-critical, metta. Uh, Reflecting on death protects us from, well, wasting our time. Because when we reflect on death, and the Buddha offered it as a, as a daily reflection, that every day we should remember that uh, death is a condition that we all live with all the time. And any one of us can get a diagnosis the day after the retreat ends that uh, is going to remind us starkly, this is the way, this, this is a condition of life. And uh, if we knew that this was it, we would spend our time more wisely we would be much more careful much more sensitive much more less demanding less expectations more accepting more tolerant Uh, this is the way it is and so to however you can encourage that in your mind by reflecting on death you know uh, you don't have to get morbid about it and that's not the goal that's not the purpose of the practice it's to support being awake and aware, of this is this is a moment of life. Death has not tapped us yet. You know, we haven't been called to the to that experience yet. But knowing that it's coming, we can. It can help us to uh, be awake to to the moment that's happening now, uh, so that we can be prepared for um, whatever comes, whenever it comes. And then finally, no not even finally, next to finally, <laughs> one should also reflect on the perception of the unbeautiful regarding your own body. Now that's, that's an interesting, you know, this is also a protective reflection. We love ourselves, you know, and that's not bad. But we also love ourselves wrongly. We love this appearance, you know, that we see reflected in the mirror, somewhat. Uh, we lo- we 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 get attached to, you know, the body, how it looks, how it feels, how it functions, and let's face it, time only runs out, <laughs> and no matter how beautiful. How well-functioning it is, no matter what your statistics are, what's your PSA, what's your cholesterol, what's your heart rate, all that stuff, no matter what it is, it's all heading downhill. <laughs> Don't forget that. Why? Because to just get kind of self-inflated and infatuated with all the possibilities the hum- that of all the pleasure that the human body can offer you, fine, that's great. But there's an end to it. So just remind yourself. Happiness and pleasure in the body is not the goal. Comfort is not the goal. Just remind yourself of that. And be willing to accept that sometimes and eventually we're going to live with this, this body as it falls out from underneath us. So be willing to 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 acknowledge that and to know that as a way of protecting your practice here. You know, using your time wisely, reflecting on death, uh, being gentle with yourself by reflecting on loving kindness, and and being willing to let go of the need for just kind of pleasurable indulging in pleasure. Uh, we've done that, <laughs> believe me. We have done it. We we've sought pursued, acquired, and indulged in immense amounts of pleasure, still not happy. Mm -hmm. Or let's say, still not satisfied, not content. There's still distress in our life. Maybe that's not the path. We don't have to be disrespectful of the body. We don't have to be denial of the body. We should have to acknowledge this is the way it is and turn our attention towards something else. This is a way of protecting our efforts here uh, so that even if you're not experiencing comfort and pleasure in your practice, your practice can still be very beneficial, often is. So these are 15 practices I've just gone through that the Buddha says would be helpful in preparing you to then, finally, one should sit comfortably comfortably, with cross legs or in any other sitting posture, chairs are fine, and then just observe your experience. It's not about torturing the body. It's not about, you know, sitting in excruciating agony. It's about sitting comfortably in your body, sitting comfortably with your mind, and then just observe what's going on. Just observe. You know, how the body is, what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind. As simple as it sounds, it's not easy to do. And that's why it's called practice. We practice doing this in order to awaken, to really see deeply the nature of this body, the nature of the mind, the nature of suffering, the nature of the end of suffering. And that's what we'll be doing, that's what we'll be practicing, uh, through a simple format of sitting and walking and just paying attention. Each day I'll be offering instructions in the morning, sitting after breakfast, and I encourage you all to to be here for that. And in the evening, each evening, I'll be offering uh, a discourse, some understanding of the Buddhist teachings, that. Hopefully will support uh, your practice in the following days. And it's not about particularly about acquiring knowledge. It's not about trying to make something happen. It's not about, you know, getting really you know, all exercised about your spiritual practice. It's just paying attention in a very simple way, but in a very precise but knowledgeable way as to what's going on. So this is Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, instruction for practicing renunciation, living in harmony, uh, clarifying your aspiration, practicing with some humility, trusting the Buddha, being obedient to the instructions of the Buddha, and really understanding why we practice and what the benefits of practice are and then to protect our practice through reflecting on metta, loving kindness, um, the virtues of the Buddha, the, and then the uh, contemplating our own death, and the fact that comfort and pleasure is not the goal. That's a lot to take in. You know, that's, we could spend a lot of time doing these practices in order to prepare for practice, but even just to remember any of them, and uh, just to remind yourself, well, these, these are preparations for practice. I think will help support your, your, your making best use of our time here. Thank you for listening.